Welcome to the All In Gospel Bible Study. Each week, we move chapter by chapter through the Bible towards a comprehensive understanding of what the Bible teaches. All In Gospel is recorded live in White Bear Lake, Minnesota, featuring Dr. Sean Dickers. You can support this broadcast by subscribing or donating at the allingospel.com website. All right, Hebrews 10. For the law having a shadow of the good things to come and not the very image of the things can never with these same sacrifices which they are continually offered year by year make those who approach perfect. For then would they not have ceased to be offered? For the worshipers once purified would have no more consciousness of sins. But in those sacrifices there is a reminder of sins every year for it's not possible that the blood of bulls and goats could take away sins. In chapter 10, we were in the middle of a thoughtful, logical, sequential set of Greek syllogisms. Whoever wrote this was strongly influenced by Plato and Socrates. All of the book of Hebrews has been one truth built upon another truth. So it's hard when you do Hebrews to break it up into different teachings because they would have read this whole thing and they would have been familiar with all the Hebrew practices that they were referencing through the whole book. So we have to stop and kind of refresh ourselves as to what these things were but there's a reasoned consequence to the resurrection of Jesus there was no debate because they had all seen it and been there there was no debate about whether or not Jesus rose from the dead they were wrestling with what do we do with this now so Hebrews isn't an apologetic for if he rose from the dead or not it's a theological statement about what do we do now that we know that he has risen from the dead how do we react to that And it was really tough for Jewish people because they were doing all their Jewish stuff. They'd grown up since they were little kids. They did all the Jewish feasts. They went to synagogue and they did it every week and they read the word of God together and they were told they were good people by doing that. So you got these Christians coming along telling the Jews the covenant has changed and you're no longer doing the right thing by doing that. In fact, that's just works. It's just stuff that you do. It doesn't actually save you. This blows the minds of the Jewish people And the argument of Hebrews is likely the arguments that Peter and James and John were giving right after the resurrection in the book of Acts. Thousands of people heard these arguments and became Christians. And it's really the only religion that didn't start through a battlefield, right? It started because people read it and said, this makes total sense. Or they heard it being taught and it made total sense. So what it means that Jesus rose is really what they're wrestling with. And they Again, they're faithful people. They're good people with a small G. They're doing all the right things. They're doing what their mom and dad said was the right thing to do. So this is tough when somebody comes along and says, okay, those things don't get you to heaven anymore. In fact, they just, they never did. So the argument of verse one, it says having a shadow of in verse one, they're building an argument over the last couple chatters that there's, that there's an outline or pattern that God gave to the Jews to do. But the whole point of the outline and pattern was so that people would see it and do it. In fact, the word having there for the law, having a shadow, the word having there in the Greek, you know the word, it means echo. So literally it's in the Greek, it's the word echo, which is where we get the word echo. It means to have something that's repeated and an echo diminishes over time, right? And you can, I remember when the kids first heard their first echoes and they were just like, how does that happen? And and so the argue of an echo is that it's just a shadow. It's a weak thing from the initial thing that was spoken. And it's been a thousand years, 
since that first thing was spoken. And this shadow gives us an idea of what the thing is, but it's not the thing itself. Like, it's a clear reference to Socrates 400 years before the writing of Hebrews. Socrates wrote or spoke about and Plato wrote about the theory of the cave. You can be in a cave your whole life, but then, um, and all you see outside the cave is these images, but they're not the real thing. They're just images of the real thing. And so there's this, there's this copy. So how do you tell somebody who's been in a cave their whole life that all they've been seeing the whole time are just images of real things? But they are real. Plato also wrote about the, the essence of a thing versus the idea of a thing. So there's an essence of a chair, but the manifestation of chair is all over the place. That's a chair, and that's a chair, and that's kind of a chair. And when we use the word chair, we're talking about a true essence that maybe we don't have access to. Maybe we don't know what the ideal chair is. And so he's arguing that idea that for the law, having a shadow of the good things to come, but is not the very image of the things. He's using that same Greek language around that. The good things there is the word agathos. It's the, word, it's the Greek word for the essence of the good. So literally using the images from, from Plato. The shadow of good is not the same as the essence of good, the goodness that we're attaining to that maybe we don't have full access to, but we know what it is. Like I can say the word good and everybody knows what it is, even people that don't follow Christ with their life. They all know what good is, right? Good is to do good things. Well, what are those good things? Where's the line for that? Um, Agathos, interestingly enough, the other place in the Bible where this word gets used is Matthew chapter 19. So Matthew chapter 19, verse 16 says, Now behold, one came to him, Jesus, and said, Good teacher. He used the word agathos. You're the essence of a good teacher. I can see that. And he says, Agathos teacher, what thing shall I do that I might have eternal life? So he said to them, Why do you call me agathos? No one is agathos but the one, God. But if you want to enter into life, keep the commandments. And even Jesus, the incarnation of God, is saying, I'm not the essence, God's the essence of God. I'm humbled into a human form. I'm not the essence of good. So why are you calling me that? It's an interesting way to read that verse, isn't it? So that the very image of the thing, icon, is where we get the word icon, is the very image of the thing is the true thing or the substance, the real or the strong thing that's there. That thing you don't quite get your head around. Think of it this way. If you went to a car dealership and you said, I really want to buy a car, and the car dealership said, oh, no, 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 what you really want is the shadow of a car. I'll sell you that shadow, and I'll sell it to you for a really low price. A thousand bucks, I'll sell you the shadow. Nobody in their right mind buys the shadow of the thing. And that's the argument of Hebrews. For the law, having a shadow of the good things to come, not the very image of the things, can never, with the same sacrifices which they offer continually year by year, make those who approach perfect. The shadow doesn't drive. You can't get in it, fire up the engine, listen to the V8 roar, and take off in the thing. But we can see that the shadow of a car is an outline of it. We get an idea what a car is. And if the car is moving and the shadow moves with it, you can even see cars move. But it's not the same thing. You can't get inside of it. So this image of the thing this is there. And the idea that it ceases, like the, the image of Christ is so much more than Christ himself. The image of good or agathos is not as wonderful as Christ being the image of God, which fills in all the details. You get with, with Jesus more so than the law. The law gives us kind of an outline of what good is, but Jesus shows us personality. 
He tells us parables. He has stories. He actually acts it out, heals people, helps people, feeds people, and says, this is what good is. And you can see the shape or the form of good. I can't see that in Gandhi, Buddha, Muhammad. I don't see the same kind of life. We don't tell stories about Muhammad's goodness. Right? That's not how it works. But with Jesus, all we know about him is those things. He was never a military leader, never a political leader, never a rich man pretending he's poor. Didn't do any of those things. When the sacrifices ceases is part of the argument, too. If the sacrifices ever did the job, the argument in these first verses is, why did they repeat them so much? This is great logic. If sacrifices were sufficient to cover sin, why did they have to keep doing them? Wouldn't you just do one and done? If you've paid for sin, isn't it paid for? Or do you have to keep making payments? Like the law was kind of like making loan payments on the car. They had to just keep making the payments every month. That doesn't mean they're getting closer to done like a car payment is. At the very foundation, Solomon himself prays this way. And I think Hebrews is reminding us of that. If you go back, tonight we'll be in 1 Kings 8. This is really nice how it works out. It makes my Bible study really easy. Solomon prays after they dedicate the temple of God, like the institution of this law sacrifice system. And when he prays, he says, but God, will God indeed dwell on the earth? Behold, heaven and the heaven of heavens cannot contain you. How much less this temple which I've built. Solomon understood this whole system was a shadow. It was all an image so that there would be this thing on earth that showed us what heaven was supposed to look like. So when Jesus showed up, he showed us the way to get there. But nothing's better than actually getting there and getting into that place. It says in verse 4, to take away sins. That's the whole point. If sacrifices were going to take away sins, why would they keep doing them? When they sin against you, for there is no one who doesn't sin. Again, prayed at the dedication by Solomon. Everybody sins. Everybody needs those sins covered. Because if you want to have a good and loving and just God, that justice part, that's sticky. Because justice says that anything that's done wrong against another human being, against God himself, it has to be accommodated for. It has to be accounted for. So I want a, a just God because I want a just world. And, and again, we, we all know that. We all know the shadow of that. We want justice, but we really don't like when justice has to deal with us. Like maybe we did some things wrong. And that's a much tougher concept to deal with. So this sacrifice of Jesus we've already talked about in Hebrews, it actually takes away sin because it's an eternal being that gets sacrificed that was pure and holy. It's actually a holy sacrifice. Cows and goats, I like how he doesn't say lambs there. He avoids the word lamb. But cows and goats, they're not perfect. They're just, they're beasts, right? But it is a sacrifice to give up a very valuable beast when you go to give sacrifice. So Jesus does more than cover sin. In verse 4, it says he takes away sin. The word there for take away is, is afiero in the Greek. It means to lop or to cut something off. Like, it's the same word that gets used when Peter in Luke 22 gets angry because they're going to take Jesus away and he gets out his sword and he lops off an ear. Same word. He takes away the ear of the, of the person, completely cuts it off. When God comes in, he doesn't just cover over the sin. He lops it off. He amputates it. That's a really strong word in the Greek. 1 John 2.12, I write to you, little children, because your sins are forgiven you for his name's sake. That's a pretty good gift. He's going to take the sin that you need to be accounting for. He's going to actually cut it off and take it away from you. It won't be part of you anymore. Therefore, you can come in boldness before God, what we talked about last week. The only thing worse than guilt is to be forgiven of guilt and then not enjoy the benefits of that. 
And that's kind of how he's writing to these Hebrews who have seen Jesus rose from the dead. They believe he's the Messiah, but then they don't believe their sins are forgiven. That's even worse than just being guilty and feeling like when you're guilty, you can at least harden your heart a little bit and say, ah, I'm not going to worry about it. But when you actually accept that that sin's been forgiven and then you keep walking about in your shame and in your guilt, that's even worse. So the next verse is verse 5 and 6. He's going to um, reference Psalm 40. If you want to be doing the back and forth, you can. Psalm 40 is right in the middle of your Bible. It says in verse 5, Then when he came into the world, he said, Sacrifice and offering you did not desire, but a body you have prepared for me. In burnt offerings and sacrifices, for sin you had no pleasure. And then I said, Behold, I've come in the volume of the book it is written of me to do your will, O God. So the Old Testament points out that sacrifices were insufficient in themselves. They'd forgotten this by the first century because of tradition. You do the same thing every week, week in, week out. You start to just do it because it's a habit. You don't do it because it's doing anything for you. So God didn't need the sacrifices in the first place. They were reminders. He didn't desire them, it says in verse 5. Yet Christians still do these things where we give sacrifices to the Lord. It's a weird tradition if you think about it. Some denominations of Christianity, Lent comes around every year and they'll give things up. They're giving like a sacrifice to the Lord, yet it says sacrifices and offerings you didn't desire. So I think sometimes we do that, that kind of thing, and the tradition is that we're just getting rid of something so that we can lose something to remind ourselves we don't need it, that we need the Lord. But the Lord doesn't need that or demand it or ask for us because the sacrifices have been given. So God's sacrifice was effective because in the sacrifice, he actually fulfills what the original ones were a shadow of. So you have to, I don't know, I, I think we think this way about church sometimes. Like we think that we give a sacrifice every Sunday morning by getting up, getting dressed, coming to church, uh, getting the kids ready to go and all that sort of thing. And we do it like an obligation. We, we, like we have to do it. Like coming to church somehow purifies us. And that's absolutely backwards thinking. It's not at all the way it is. In fact, going to synagogue became, almost, became nearly irrelevant. And this is why the Jews were arguing with the Christians. Because the Christians were saying, well, you go because you love to go. But the Jewish people, if you think about their tradition, they don't go to synagogue because they love to. They go to synagogue because they have to. Talk to any like devout Jew and their whole worldview shifts because of that. Like you do some things because you have to. You don't have to like it. You just do it. And there's some value in that kind of thinking. It makes you tough, but it doesn't make you more full of love and joy. So when Christians start going to church out of obligation, that's a really dangerous place for us. Again, there's nothing worse than doing things out of obligation when there's no obligations. You do things because you love to do them. I want to be at church because it's my place of rest every week. I just like relaxing with my family. It's a great way to do it. And there are, and again, to be fair, there's some modern Jews where they have begun to see Sabbath as just that rest time again, which is great. And we'll talk about the Jewish people in a little bit, but a lot of those Jewish people are coming back to Messiah. And it, like no other time in history, it's really a phenomenal thing that doesn't make the news. But a body you've prepared for me. Okay, i got to pull this up. Verse 5, the end, he's quoting Psalm 40. David writes, a body you've prepared for me. This is crazy because if you're looking back at Psalms, they change the words here. So if you read this in Psalms, it's going to read different than there. And, the, and, and what they're doing is they're quoting the Septuagint, the Greek version of the Old Testament. So when they made the Septuagint, they interpreted the Hebrew and turned it into something else. In the Old Testament, in my Bible, it says, the, the ears have been opened for me. 
So how do you go from ears being opened in our English version to the Septuagint Greek saying, a body you've prepared for me? That seems like a big shift in words, doesn't it? In the first 40, the word ears there in the Hebrew is ozen. And the word ozen can be a part of the body or it can be the whole body. So really the true version of that is a body has been prepared, which is how the writers of this actually interpret that, is that they just do it as a whole body. When the English translators came along, they said, well, this must be ears because the other word means to bore open, dig out, or excavate. So if you excavate your ear, all you're going to get is earwax. But the word there, ozen, but a ozen you have opened or bore open. And actually the bore open, it's the same word they use when you take an awl and poke a stake through something. So it's an odd word to use with an ear because you don't bore open your ears. However, they're thinking if you're going to open up the body, either they're talking about, they're talking about one of the openings. And the only two clean openings to use would be the mouth and the ears. So it, uh, clearly it's not, oh, but your mouth you've opened for me. So they say your, your body or your ear has been opened for me in the Septuagint, or in the, in the Hebrew. But then in the Septuagint, they kind of said, well, this must mean your body you've prepared for me. Either way, it becomes an odd thing. From a Christian perspective, we like the original Hebrew. And that's why these writers of Hebrews are actually writing it that way. But a body you've prepared for me. They use different Greek words than the Septuagint translators. It's kind of interesting. Because from a Christian perspective, when you think about Jesus... Jesus is an actual body or an incarnation of God that actually gets punctured by stakes on a cross. It's actually completely accurate. So they go back to what the original Hebrew means, saying, and, and the other thing is the original Hebrew, this preparation or this opening is usually done in a ritual sacrifice. To be really clear, and I didn't take the time to look this up, and I should, we've studied through the law, and somewhere in the law it talks about when a person wants to do a, be a voluntary servant or a slave. Remember that? Like you've served for this boss for a long enough time, your term's up, and they say, no, 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 I want to be part of your family. I want to serve you for the rest of my life. And there's this voluntary sacrifice. The way they sealed that sacrifice is the weirdest thing in the world, but they bored open a hole through the person's ear. And they would stake it to the doorpost of the house so everybody in the community could see this person was voluntary doing it. They'd pierce their ears on behalf of their bosses. So then they would wear an earring saying, I belong to this family. They would get adopted into the family. It was an image of how we give our lives to Christ. And that's why it was written that way in the Hebrew. They're probably thinking of that voluntary commitment of that body you've prepared for, that ear you've opened for me, would be a reference to that voluntary thing. And then when we get here, it says, but a body you've prepared for me. And they're referencing Jesus. Like he did the same thing. He voluntarily went on a cross so that he could serve. And we voluntarily say, I want to serve the king. I'm tired of living my own life, doing it my own way. And so that image, I just love that how that's, they, they put that in there. But this, again, these are the arguments that just blew the Hebrews away. This is why they all started converting. Why thousands of them became Christians. Is they're like, oh, wait, that, that was about this? And they just went there. The image of the body is also throughout the New Testament referred to as the body of Christ or Jesus. That he died, his body was broken on our behalf. We're going to do communion today. That's what that's all about, right? It's this image or this idea that Christ gave his body so that he can form a church. And that the body has many parts, Paul writes. Psalm 40, verse 9, I proclaim the good news of righteousness in the great assembly. Indeed, I did not restrain my lips. O Lord, you yourself know. Verse 40 is an amazing chapter that when you read it through the eyes of Jesus, it just reads like Jesus, the whole thing. 
And so, in fact, that, oh, Lord, you yourself is three references to God, and, and it's one of those verses that supports a triune God image. But there are hundreds of these directions. So when they, in verses 5 and 6, when the writers of Hebrew are referencing this Psalm 40, they know it's a messianic psalm. And they know darn well that their readers understand what that chapter is all about. And so there's tons of these. Genesis 3, Micah 5, Isaiah 7, 53, 61, Daniel 9, Psalm 2, Psalm 40, which we just quoted, 69, Psalm 30, 132, Zechariah 11. Like knowing some of these things that the writers of Hebrews did, there's all these references to Messiah, what the Messiah will be, how he'll show up. When Jesus is born, over a hundred of these prophecies get fulfilled, which is why people read the first two chapters of Matthew and Jewish people just convert. Oh, that's absolutely, everything's been fulfilled. On the cross, he fulfills another whole score of these prophecies that are out there. Knowing the Old Testament helps you understand that. Jesus incarnated, the end of verse 6, to do the will of God. This was God's will from the beginning of time. Genesis chapter 3. When it was written... This is the thing that created these kinds of conversions. And it's fun to kind of get the book of Hebrews because we get a sense of what the disciples were teaching when they went to the courtyards and the, the synagogues. These are the things they would point people to. So it's 2,000 years later. The only other time in human history where as many Jews were converting to Christianity is the last three years. This is crazy, you guys. In, in 2008, in Israel, there were 12 Messianic Jewish congregations. When you flip forward, a study by Cerner and Golner just showed that in just a few years, that number's gone to 280 Messianic Jewish fellowships. Like a huge shift. That means there's over 15,000 Jews in Israel right now that call Jesus their Messiah. And they're walking away from these traditions. Uh, I think this one's a good one. This one happened back in 2006, so maybe I'm dating myself a little bit. Rabbi Yitzhak Kaduri died in 2006. He was huge. He was one of their top, um, what they would call a mystic cabalist. So people would listen to what he would say because he was like predicting the future, right? So they would always, they would cling to what he said. He has this dream about a month before he dies, and he dreams that he talks to the Messiah. But he has to put it in an envelope. So um, <laughs> Rabbi Yitzhak seals an envelope and he says, you can open this one year after I'm dead. You know this story? Okay. And then, in, and then when they open the letter, he said the first letter of each of the, the prophecies is going to spell out the name of Messiah. So open this a year after I've died. Again, this is mystic Judaism, right? This is just weirdness from our perspective. So they do it. They're all excited. They have this big, huge event, 2007. They're going to open the letter from Rabbi Yitzhak and see what it says. And they open it up, and it spells out Yeshua, right? And, and they're all going, wait, what? What is this? And so we see that these things have been happening over the last few years in Israel, all over the world. There's people coming back, reading Hebrews, reading Matthew, and they're starting to realize that this is there. Uh, if you talk to our friend Trevor, who works for, uh, um, oh goodness, what's his ministry? Good News for Israel. Um, he's talking, he's never seen anything like it, and he's been in the ministry now for a long time. But he just sees people open to it. He's getting invited to synagogues all over the Twin Cities, and he's able to just go through the Old Testament with them and walk them through this. Well, that's what Hebrews is doing. They're walking them through it. Hey, Psalm 40, did you read that carefully? Like our, our Savior was going to be pierced for us on our behalf. 
Here's the guts of it. The entire Old Testament is written about Jesus, all of it, every chapter. And we've been going through it. We just keep seeing it again and again and again. That much historical documentation is unmovable. Like at some point, we weenie little humans can sit and argue and bicker about it, but there's so much overwhelming prophecy that leads to Jesus that it becomes something that people have to deal with. Or you just ignore it and say, I don't want to deal with it, which is a dangerous thing to do with your soul. Verse 7 says it really clearly. The volume of this book is written of me as a reference to the Old Testament. So the study of the Old Testament leads to faith, not tradition. 1 Peter 1 uh, Verse 20 says, Who verily was foreordained before the foundation of the world, but was manifest in these last times for you, to do your will, O God. Just awesome. Okay, verse 8. We'll keep going, but we're going to hear Grandma <laughs> in a second or two. Um, verse 8. Previously saying, Sacrifice and offering, burnt offerings and offerings for sin you did not desire nor had pleasure in them, which are offered according to the law. Then he said, Behold, I have come to do your will, O God. He takes away the first that he may establish the second. So this is expositional teaching. This is what we do every week. He's going through Psalm 40. He reads it, and then he says, here's what this means. So he's continuing to unpack the logic of Psalm 40 for the readers. And again, this is kind of what we do. We just go through it word by word. Uh, taking away the first would be the practice of sacrifice. So when it talks about the first, the first covenant, it's talking about the Mosaic system establishing the second, which is the covenant of Jesus or the eternal sacrifice. Verse 10 says, By that we've been sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once and for all. He's using Psalm 40 to make a very clear statement of faith. He's emphasizing again that Jesus' sacrifice was sufficient for all. You say, how can one sacrifice deal with billions of sins? Uh, part of that is the, the phrase they put in here is really important. They say once and for all. And that gets used often in, in Hebrews and other places. Um, in verse 10, when it says once and for all, that's epipax. It means a singular one single occasion that deals with everything all at once. So um, if something happens in history and it's once and for all, it's once but it's forever done. In other words, if Jesus paid for our sins, that's a purchase, right? If, if Steph and I bought a house, we bought the house at a period in time, but it's our house forever for as long as we own it, right? So it's done once and for all. And that's the idea of a redeeming purchase. It's purchased, but it's purchased forever. And Jesus didn't just purchase a particular sin. He, sat, he was sacrificed for the sins of all. In other words, that would be the idea of sin at all. So Jesus didn't just buy your sin that you did yesterday. He bought all of the idea of sin, and that's now his domain, his territory. So that's the argument. Verse 11, And every priest stands ministering daily, offering repeatedly the same sacrifices, which never take away sins. They only cover them. But this man, he's talking about Jesus, after he had offered one sacrifice for sins forever, sat down at the right hand of God, and from that time, waiting till his enemies are made his footstool, for by the one offering, he's perfected forever those who are being sacrificed. So every priest stands because there's work to be done. They stand continually because they got to do the sacrifices over and over and over. Verse 12, but this man, notice he sits down. You sit down because the work's done. You don't sit until everything's finished. So, you, so there, that's a finality kind of logic that they're putting out there. 
the priests are plural, and then the emphasis on this man is that it's a singular person that does it. It's like weeding or picking leaves. You've got to get them up by the roots, right? If you just leave them, they just keep popping up over and over and over again. But if one man does it right, that weed is gone. The, the weed of the world has been pulled up. Sin persists because its roots go deep. They're in our heart. Jesus' offer, what he offers then is not just a covering of our sins, but a healing of our heart to root sin up and out of our life forever. That's not just pursuing or going after sin. That's saying that following Christ actually changes your heart. That's where Christians get that language from. This man sits down then. He's waiting till. There's a hint here of the rest of human history, which is unfolding as we live. There's an era between the assumption and the reign of Christ. He's assumed authority, but he hasn't taken the reign of Christ. This is really similar to David who gets anointed and then is out in the wilderness for a while before he's made into a king, right? There's just this idea or this image of you can be anointed before God actually puts you in the position there. So he allows this. Why does God allow this period between? I think because he doesn't want anybody to perish. He wants to give people a chance to think about what just happened. So the idea is Christ is perfected forever those who are being sanctified. That sounds kind of like an oxymoron if you really think about that line, doesn't it? How do you perfect forever something that's being sanctified. The idea there is perfected in the Greek is, is teleaho. It means to finish or complete something. To, we, we see the word perfected. It doesn't mean being perfect and shiny and glossy. It means perfect like a finished puzzle. It's been done and it's been completed. So then there are, there are those who are. So Jesus calls and invites everybody, but not everybody chooses to follow him. Like we know this. we got family and friends that aren't following the Lord. And that's... Their prerogative, we serve a God that loves us enough to let us make our choice for ourselves. And that idea of being sanctified means that there isn't, like, there's a work of sanctification that starts when you begin to follow Jesus, but it takes time for it to work out. In fact, it takes a lifetime. So that idea of being sanctified over time is definitely this concept of what salvation is all about. Salvation is simply choosing to follow Jesus as your king. I give up doing this on my own. I'm going to try to be, I'm going to be good by God's definition of good. I'm going to try to serve the Lord. And I'm going to accept that he gave a gift for my sins. I'm going to stop trying to do things to take care of my sin. I'm going to follow the Lord and, make am- and let God make amends for it. I'm going to give it to God. People love the idea of salvation. They horribly neglect the idea of sanctification. Well, I'm saved by grace. Now I can go do whatever I want. Well, that's foolish. That's, to that point, people would say, well, you didn't really understand what salvation was. But part of it is people get saved and we haven't explained sanctification to them. Welcome to the kingdom. It's like getting tickets to get into the state fair, but then keeping people at the gate, right? Oh, we're so glad they got into the state fair. No, they didn't. They didn't even walk around. They stayed at the gate the whole time. They didn't even, they got tickets. They didn't even bother to walk in. They never showed up at church, right? That's, they haven't, at some level you say, are they even saved? So that idea of, that ongoing process of sanctification for one by one offering he's perfected forever those who are being sanctified it's an overtime process that sin gets pulled out of your life we've done a lot of weeding right now that's why that keeps coming to my mind i don't regret or say i don't cling to sin because i'm so happy when it's gone because i can go to bed and not feel guilty what a great feeling but there's something where there's that battle in the flesh and in the spirit where over the years we've got to get ourselves 
taken care of so we can let the Spirit of God come in and fill us and be who God made us to be. But that process is a sanctification process. Jesus then waiting until his enemies are his footstool. It seems to be that sanctification is, is at least connected to this idea of God waiting for things to happen. So if you still got sin in your life and you haven't gotten rid of it, get it taken care of so we can have Jesus come back. I'm sorry, that's my commentary. That's maybe what this is talking about. Sanctified, to render or venerate as hallow, to consecrate or set apart or dedicate things to God. If we accept the salvation God offers, the next step is to say, what in my life can I consecrate or set apart to God? That's not a sacrifice or an offering. That's very different. That's a a willing, voluntary thing. It's like putting your ear to the doorpost. I want to serve the Lord forever. I'm going to commit my life to the Lord. So that idea of sanctification, it's this open door. Everything's been set up. The table's set. The feast is ready. you got to walk in and go in, and that's sanctification. So people get saved, and then they don't do anything about it. Well, then they don't enjoy any of the benefits of being saved. They never came to the feast. So it's one of those things. And that idea of sanctification as setting or consecrating things apart, the first thing God says to set apart is, this is my Sabbath, keep it holy. Take a Sunday and make it God's day. Just give him one day out of seven a week. That's a pretty reasonable request given that he saved your whole life, not just a seventh of it. Right? Render unto Caesar what belongs to Caesar. Give to God what belongs to God. And God asks not for us to sacrifice out of obedience. He asks to do it because we just love to give it to him. Here's the great thing. I'm blessed by things like Sabbath and tithe. Like those things God asks for, I love giving them to God because I see what, that it's really, he's just doing it because he loves me, right? So when we ask our kids to do things sometimes, what they don't understand, the younger they are, is we're asking them to do things that will actually make them happier people. It'll be a blessing to them. But sometimes when you get kids and they're throwing a temper tantrum, they just don't get that. They don't understand what you're asking is actually going to be better for them than if they do touch the stove, right? Maybe just let's go do something else right now. And the Lord does the same thing with his children. The word sanctified, I think it's just a breathtaking word. I think it should be, as we're believers, I mean, we're here studying the Bible. Like At some level, we believe in God. We believe Jesus died for our sins. The process of sanctification is so easy and so powerful and such a blessing to us. It's such an amazing word. Just take a day and make it his. And wow, the blessing I get out of that and have gotten out of that for 30 years is just stunning. Sanctification. I'm not the same guy I was, and I know that because I didn't change me. I just let God's word come into my heart, and then I felt guilty when I did things, and then I stopped doing things, and then I feel not guilty. It's really easy. You look back over the years, and you're just like, I'm just a different, I'm a happier guy than I was. I'm a new creation, is how the disciples put it when they write. This covenant, so the, the Holy Spirit witnesses to us in verse 15. For after he had said before, this is the covenant that I will make with them after those days, after the resurrection, says the Lord, I will put my law into their hearts and in their minds, and I will write them. Then he adds, their sins and their lawless deeds I will remember no more. I'm lopping them off. So they're, they're citing and they're referencing things here. They make reference to the Holy Spirit. So here the he that they're talking about is the Holy Spirit. So make no mistake, When the disciples are talking about the Holy Spirit, they're actually talking about Yahweh because verse 16 says the Lord, verse 15 says the Holy Spirit. It's the same agent in both verses. So when somebody says that they're different beings, don't listen to that nonsense. That is not how the first century Christians perceived it. 
I'm Sean the person, I have Sean the body, I have Sean the spirit. This Trinity thing isn't that complex because we all have it, right? So God has a person. In Jesus, he has a body. He also has a spirit that moves around and, and is there. So the covenant that they're talking about, this reference in verse 15 and 16, they're quoting Jeremiah. They just don't name their source. Uh, this is well after Moses. So here's Jeremiah after Moses speaking of a new covenant. That was convicting to Jews because they're thinking the Mosaic covenant was the only one. That's it. They still do, right? It's just the Torah. It's all about the Torah. But he's quoting Jeremiah, who they also have in, in, their, in their Old Testament. And, and he says, after those days. So they're quoting a passage that's speaking of the future with a new covenant in it. And that new covenant's going to be this law in their hearts and minds and write them, and I will write them. For God to write things on our hearts and minds, we actually have to hear it first. That's why we come to church and read the Bible. And then we go through the week, and it actually, there's a process that transforms us over the week because we hear what God says for our lives, and then we go try to do it. Super simple. Like God actually knew his creations. He knew how we worked. He didn't make it too difficult. He's like, show up every week. You're going to hear the Bible get taught by some knucklehead that wants to study it all week. And over time, you're going to be a different person because you're just going to change. Because now you're not, honestly, I'm not sitting here debating you on internet, the internet, Facebook, and Twitter about what you th should think and what you do. If you just come in and hear his word every week, you're hearing what God thinks you should be doing. You're not arguing with other people. You're actually reading the Bible for yourself. This is why we talk about it when I'm done teaching is because the way I'm teaching it may not be the way you're reading it. So let's talk about that. And let's be open to the fact that God can speak to us through his word in different kinds of ways. But let's stick to what the Bible says. So it's not us against some Twitter troll. It's us against the word of God. And in that sense, if the word of God's stepping on your toes, move your toes and save your soul. And, and just submit to the fact that God knows what good is more than we do or more than that person on, on, on YouTube. The idea that God will re remember our sins no more is a promise of forgiveness, but we're not there yet with the Old Covenant. If Jeremiah is saying that he will remember them no more, that means that in the Old Testament, under the Mosaic system, he's still remembering the sins. They're just covered. The New Testament then seals it. That's why we call it a testament. The testament of somebody is a covenant that's made, and it's sealed by a blood sacrifice. Moses sealed it on the altar, and Jesus sealed it on the cross. Two covenants. The eternal goodness, then, is that free gift that we got. Romans 5.8, I think, says this really succinctly. Therefore, as through one man's offense, judgment comes to all men, that's Adam, resulting in condemnation, even so, through one man's righteous act, Jesus, the free gift comes to all men, resulting in the justification of life. It just works that way. Verse 18. Now, where there's remission of these sins, there is no longer an offering for sins. If they're remitted, you don't need to make offerings. Again, he's still arguing with Jews about going to temple. Theologically, this is a conclusive statement that can guide our thinking. Like, we can use a lot from that verse. Christ died once for the forgiveness of sin. He died for all sin. Jesus didn't die for a sin, individual ones. He died for sin in total, capital sin. And then all sin is forgiven for all time. One sacrifice for everyone, for all time, for all sin, done. Or as Lisa would say, pencils down. That's verse 18. That's the conclusion of Hebrews. Right? It comes to this point, and it's like where there's remission of these, there's no longer offering for sin. And when it says sin there in verse 18 at the very end, that's a singular word that they're using because they're emphasizing that idea that this isn't about 
individual people's individual sins. This is about all sin for all time. It's been remitted for everyone. People get all caught up about who's called and who's not called. Everyone's called. Not everybody comes. But everybody's got the invite. It's been dealt with. Your sin that you've done, it's been dealt with. It's been, it's been handled. So theologically, we can walk in that light or we can fight that. So if Jesus came and he died for our sins, here's one way to think about this. Would he need to then keep dying for our sins over and over and over and over again because the first time didn't work? So that idea, that idea of conclusiveness in verse 18 is a big theological idea. So this concludes the first part of Hebrews. Actually, that verse 18 sums up all of chapters 1 through 9. It comes right down to that point. The old way doesn't, is just shattered, doesn't work anymore. It's succinct, and we've got nine chapters of supporting syllogistic argument that lead to that point. So, it's, so then the next question is, then what? And so verse 19 starts with the word, therefore. The rest of Hebrews, it's like this is starting a new book now, the rest of Hebrews from chapter 19 forward is what the heck do we do with this? How does this change our life? Therefore, brethren. I love that the writers throw in the word brethren. Brethren means brothers and sisters, family, people in my family. And he's writing to these Hebrews that are debating about if they should go back to synagogue at night, go to that old dead church because their family did for 30 years. And he's just saying, brothers and sisters, I got to just give you this. Therefore, brothers and sisters, brethren, having boldness to enter the holiest by the blood of Jesus, by a new living way which he consecrated for us through the veil, that is his flesh, and having a high priest over the whole house of God. They give so many theological truths here. This big idea that Jesus died for your sins, right? And we say that, and I think sometimes as Christians, especially um, when we're talking to non-believers, we just throw that out there like it doesn't have massive meaning to it. Like, think about if you're a non-believer and you don't know a lot about the kingdom and you say, Jesus died for your sins. Well, first, people may not believe that they have sin. Like, that's a problem. I'm a, I'm a generally good person. By what standard? By your own standard? By God's standard? Do you know what God's standard even is? We got a generation of people in America, they have not read the Old Testament. They cannot name the Ten Commandments. They don't know what God's definition of good is. Then you put on Jesus' layer in the Sermon on the Mount. People love the nice part, but that whole, like, if you even thought a naughty name towards person, you've murdered that person in your heart. What? That's what the Ten Commandments are? They're at that level? That's how God sees it? Like, you just think, oh, Jesus made it impossible. Right, the law makes it impossible. You can't get there. That was Jesus' point. You need something better than that system. Or you're just going to live your whole life in this cycle of just nonsense, and then you're going to die, and it didn't mean anything. Or you can enter into the holiest. What does that mean? Well, for Jews, they, the holiest of holies is only one place. That's the middle of the temple, the courtyard that nobody could go into. Big veil in the way, chain with pomegranates in, the, in Solomon's temple, barrier between God and man. But if we can go in there, it says by the blood of Jesus, again, you've got a thousand years of mosaic temple system, or 500 years from Solomon, right? There's a thought, figure out the timeline somewhere else. The priest, the high priest that went in once a year to basically do housekeeping in the holiest of holies, they had to be co literally covered with the blood of animals to go in there. It's just this idea of like they're not seeable by God or a symbol or a shadow of that idea. But if we can go in by the blood of Jesus, it means we can access God. Like don't take this for granted, Christians. We can pray and God actually hears us. What? 
in the Old Testament system, I had to go to temple at the right time, give us animal sacrifice from my herds, so give up something I own, and so that the priest could go in and pray on my behalf and weave the little smoke things past the veil. So when this writer in verse 19 says, we can go in with boldness, it means we can just walk right in. If they walked in in the Old Testament, they got killed, right? So Aaron's two sons just got waxed for doing that. We had people trying to carry the ark that shouldn't carry the ark. They got killed for doing that. So the idea that we can go in with boldness is we don't have to be scared of being killed. Like think how Jewish people would have heard this. You can go into the holies by the blood of Jesus. He's already covered it for you. Verse 20, by a new and living way which he consecrated for us. All covenants have to be consecrated. So he's speaking their language. The other thing about the veil, <laughs> Matthew 27, 51, when Jesus died on the cross, and behold, the veil of the temple was rent in two from the top to the bottom, and the earth did, did quake and the rocks were rent. Physically, God ripped the veil upon Jesus' death because it was finished. That whole system was done. Jesus says on the cross, it is finished. It's completed. It's perfected. The new living way has been made, and the old way got tore up. And God said it there. Verse 20, by a new and living way. In the Greek there, the, the new and living way is this idea of continual freshness. In the Hebrew systems, the only thing that could clean or wash or prepare the priests <clears throat> before the blood, it had to be living water. It had to be water that wasn't stagnant or in a pool. It had to be moving water. So the only thing that could, could wash away was that idea of a living water. In the, in the Greek, the word living there um, was a thing that gave life or gives life. So it's a life giver. So really, uh, it, verse 20 should be a continually fresh way of life giving would be the literal translation of the Greek there. That there's this idea that there's always a freshness to what's going on with Jesus. I don't know about you, but I see that. Anybody that's gone to, like, consistently and faithfully been at church every week and heard the word every week, you start to see that in your life. There's this continual refreshment that happens all the time, and there's something alive about it. Unlike, like, mystical experiences or pagan religions, where you have this explosive emotional thing initially that convinces you that that pagan religion has something to it, in Christianity, it's very different. Do the obedient things of God, and over time, you become rock solid in your faith. And you don't see 30-year-old believers that don't understand that idea because it grows over time. God doesn't want to whack you into belief with some experience. He wants you to be faithful to him because the experience is right on the cross. He wants you to remember what he did and be faithful to him in a humble, quiet obedience, a new and living way, continually fresh, life-giving. God doesn't ask us to do things that hurt us. He asks us to do things that actually give us life. And frankly, when you start seeing God moving, it's exciting. I remember the first time we were praying for something and we came back the next week and it was like, oh, the person was healed. They went into the doctor and it was gone. And, and you think, wow, God actually heard our prayers. And that was a really cool moment, but it just happened so quietly, right? The high priest had a dead animal way of getting into the holiest of holies. We have a living way of getting into the holiest of holies. Christ didn't just die, he actually rose from the dead too. So you get that peace where he's, he both died for our sins and he gives us a living way into the kingdom. Where is he now if he's alive? 
the Bible says he's at the right hand of God doing the work of God. The right hand of God is the agent that moves and does things. It's the hand of God. So in John 4, verse 23, the hour is coming and it now is when true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and in truth for the Father seeking such to worship him. God is spirit and those who worship him must worship in spirit and in truth. We do song, we do Bible study. It's really simple. Do you know that God gives life continually to the point that it even overflows. And oftentimes believers, I think, again, it's, it's tough to know that in your head, but have it 12 inches away from your heart. And you just miss that. So you've got Christians that live in shame and doubt, depression, anxiety, fear, anger, and they don't understand that if you just let go of some of those things, there's a different way to live. Is God then a theory or an idea in your head? Or has God a relationship that you have that you see because you've done the faithful thing? Are you being sanctified over time or are you just saved? And I feel so sorry for people that have just accepted the idea, but they've never lived the life. What a down thing. Verse 21 says, having a high priest. That's all talked about in chapter 7. Again, they're building on other arguments. This idea that we're now in Jesus' house and that we belong to his family. That's all in chapter 3 of Hebrews. And it keeps kind of, they're building on these ideas they've already gone through a whole chapter on. You can go back in the podcast and listen to those if you want to. We're going to get four directives moving forward. We're going to cover the first two, and then we're going to run out of time today. Some of the most clear directions for believers that I've found in the New Testament. Because a lot of times we're like, okay, what should we do? Now that we've accepted the hope of salvation, what do we do to get sanctified? How do we do that? Well, this chapter, and as we go forward here, the end of chapter 10 is going to give us the four directives. And then chapter 11 is a whole chapter on the first one. Chapter 12 is a whole chapter on the next one. Chapter 13 is a whole chapter on the third and the fourth. So this, the rest of Hebrews is like, okay, how do we live life and what do we do with it? So here's the four. Draw near, hold fast, consider one another, exhort one another. You've accepted Christ as your Savior. You're going to serve in the kingdom. Those are the four things we're actually told to do, right? And Christians add 20 million other things, and those just add stress and create a works-based Pharisee system. We only got four things that we're commanded to do in the book of Hebrews, right? Verse 22, let us draw near with a true heart in full assurance of faith, having our hearts sprinkled from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. I've accepted the idea of God, so what do you do next? You draw near. How do you draw near? If, if we're separated from God, how do we get closer to God? And again, there's different epistles that talk about this and get there. Uh, for the Old Testament thing, if we look at it from a Hebrews worldview, the way you drew near was you'd come to the actual temple courtyard area. You would give your sacrifice to the priest. That was called drawing near. And so that in that idea, you could see a glimpse of what was going on in the temple. You could see the priest offering your ammo. So you'd turn to your kids and say, that's our cow that he's killing right now. But you would, you'd only get close. And that idea is that you would then be praying and you'd be worshiping God. When they came up to the temple, they were singing songs. When they came to the temple, they were in prayer. So coming near to God had everything to do for the Old Testament Jew, had everything to do with singing those psalms. And, and saying the prayers of Solomon, the prayers of David, the, 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 the prayers that they found throughout the Old Testament. They would cite the prayers, they would sing the songs. It says here to do it with a true heart. They would do a lot of that stuff out of obedience, because they had to. If they didn't do it, they were going to burn in hell. 
the idea of doing it with a true heart is you do it because you want to. It's a really different equation. Yet so many Christians go back to the have-to model. And what a sad thing. The Old Testament priests had to be wearied when they came near to God. They had to be scared when they did it for really good reason. Worship had to do with this giving up something. But you, the idea of giving up our own agenda for God's is kind of a good idea. Like maybe I just let go of my agenda and I just live life for the Lord and see what happens. Abraham and Isaac was the first act of worship in the Old Testament. Abraham willing to give up his only son so that so he could serve as God. And then instead of God making him do it, he actually God gave up his only begotten son to love the world and he actually carried it out. So we see those images, that willingness to give up our time as God asks us to. Jesus actually says he is the Sabbath. He is our rest. The Sabbath is the only one of the Ten Commandments not repeated by Jesus himself. Because he says, I am your Sabbath. Come draw near to Jesus is drawing near to God himself. So we come near by singing songs, we pray, we worship, we do it with a true heart. Toughest thing with prayer and worship is if you haven't done them before, they feel weird and awkward. So give that up. Get past yourself. Sing the praises whether or not you feel like it. Drawing near doesn't say that you have a happy thing. It says that you have a true heart, not a happy heart or an emotional heart or a heart that's feeling it today. Prayer and worship are things we do because they're sacrifices. They're things we do because they're true and they're accurate. So this is a big debate in the Christian church as to what worship should look like. Worship should be more true than anything else. This is why we take, we, we're really careful with the words. I wish sometimes we could do worship, cut the music, and just read the lyrics. Like, and if you still have the lyrics next to you and you're bored, like, read those lyrics. They're great and they're true. So we sing things that are true back to God. This is how Solomon prays. He's, the whole first third of his prayer is just telling God what God's already said and repeating it because it's good for our brains to repeat what God says, not what we say. The assurance of faith. I think this is really interesting. There are different levels of faith, right? So we have a chair in our house upstairs in the living room. It's a really old chair. You know which one I'm talking about? That brown rickety thing. And it's, it's a chair, but it was my mom's chair. It has sentimental value. But every time somebody sits on it, I worry a little bit because at some point that thing's just going to fall apart. It is old wood. It's dried wood. Now that I've talked about the chair, you may have hope that someday you can try the chair. Like I get done teaching right now, you can go upstairs and you can have hope to try that chair. Your hope of salvation, right? It's in the future. Now, for many of you, you can then have faith in the chair that it's going to hold you. Because I'm telling you right now, it will hold you. That's faith. I have faith in a chair that will hold me. Your faith isn't ignorant or blind. I'm not asking you to step past logic and reason. I'm saying that because I've sat in the chair hundreds of times and it's held me up. So I have faith in the chair. Assurance of faith in our verse, verse 22, that's a different thing. Assurance of faith happens after you sit in the chair, past tense. Now only it's unreasonable to not believe it because you've seen it. So when we say let's draw near with a true heart in full assurance of faith, God's not asking us to, to set our reason aside. In fact, it's quite the opposite. An assurance of faith is you come near to God because you've come near him before and it worked. You come near to God because you're near him and it actually works. You hear God's word and it gives you a peace. Well, that's an assurance of faith. That's not faith in the future or about something to come. That's something you're experiencing right now. So once you're sitting in it, you start to have it. That past experience gets proved true 
over and over and over and over again, that's not faith anymore. That's assurance of faith. And I love when I meet believers where they're just resolute on things. Well, God will do that. God has done that because they've seen it so many times. They just have, they don't have weak faith. They have strong assurance of faith. They've been there. They've done it. Romans 8.38, I'm convinced that nothing can ever separate us from God's love. That, that doesn't sound like a maybe. That sounds like a mature believer saying, no, I'm convinced. I've seen it. I've done it. You can't be separated from God's love. You can do the worst thing in the planet, and God still loves you. You can. Paul was a murderer. He murdered people, not just one or two in, in a flight of anger, but willfully, intentionally hunted them down like a ninja right? This guy was a mass murderer by any standard. And he writes things like, I'm convinced nothing can separate us from the love of God. He can't do it because all of sin's been forgiven. That's not permission to sin. That's permission to say, thank you, Lord. Not drawing near out of doing other things with your life. What a disaster that is. Most I meet so many Christians today, they don't even bother with the consecration of drawing near at least once a week. Much less, you're not really going to mature unless you're drawn near to the Lord every single day. Do your devotions. Read your word. Give, give God 30 minutes out of your 16-hour waking day. It's, he doesn't ask for a huge amount. He asks for something. Well, I'm too busy. I overslept. I can't do this. I can't do that. Stop making baby excuses and grow up. Get your life in order. Matthew 23, 15. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, you hypocrites! You travel land and sea to win one proselyte, and when he's won, you make him twice as much a son of hell as yourselves. Okay. If my job is to draw near to God, and I don't draw near to God, I don't know the joy of the Spirit, I'm not faithfully in a body of believers where I can partake of the body of Christ, how then can I possibly tell another person to come enjoy what I don't experience? You're a hypocrite, and you're creating works-based believers that are twice as much a son of hell as yourself. So we see people doing this. If you aren't near to God, stop trying to draw other people in. You should first be drawing yourself close to God. Sprinkled and washed are both references to Hebrew sacrifices in verse 20. Uh, sprinkled is, it's really in the Hebrew, it's splashed or covered in blood. The priests would be largely red. and It's gory. It's a nasty scene. I'm really glad that in the second covenant we got rid of that. And baptism is to be washed in the water. And we still do that. Jesus' blood covered us once and for all, but we still are asked to practice baptism. How do you draw near to the Lord? Obey the Lord in something as ridiculous as getting in a lake and getting dunked. Like, honestly, think of, of all of the things God could have asked for people. He's like, get in the water and get dunked. Do something that looks totally stupid to this world because you love me more than this world. And honestly, I, I can't get, like, why does getting dunked in the wall? I mean, I get the symbolism and everything, but it's such a silly thing. But God's like, fine, I want you to do something silly. It doesn't hurt. It doesn't, it's not a bad thing. It's actually kind of joyful. And when people get baptized, they realize the joy when they come up out of the water. I was obedient unto the Lord in one thing. Just one thing starts that process of sanctification. Then think, okay, what else can I do with the Lord? You know, I remember asking a, a veteran pastor, I was like, okay, so do pastors tithe? Like, if you're getting paid by the church, do you tithe your money? And the pastor just laughed at me, and he's like, man, I give it all to the Lord. I take what I have to to pay my bills, but everything else goes to church. So I think I tithe like 40, 50%. I'm like, what? That's crazy. And he's like, no, it's just, I'm giving everything I can to the Lord. And so 
the more you start thinking, what can I give to the Lord? It stops being a thing of obligation. It starts just being something that's joyful. How can I bless the body? Which we'll get to next week. Let us draw near with a full assurance of faith, having our hearts sprinkled from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. What a great thought. Verse 23. This is number two. Let us hold fast. There's four lettuces in here, and that's not vegetables. That's just let us do this, let us do that, let us do this. Right? So it's let us, let us, let us. Verse 23 is the second one. Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering, for he who promised is faithful. So let us hold fast. What, this is the thing we can cling to. We don't cling to empty shadows, but a living hope. So what does that mean? What's the second admonishment? We've got to draw near, then we've got to hold fast. Guilty folks can, you know, this idea of holding fast in the Old Testament was this idea of you would run when you were guilty of something, even if it's an accident, you would just run to the altar. A lot of times Christians screw up or backslide or do something dumb, and they run away from the altar. Bad decision. The first thing you do is you go back into fellowship with other believers. You go towards the Word of God. And this was a concept the Jews had been teaching for hundreds of years before this was written. The holding fast was this idea of a city of refuge. You'd run and you'd hold to the gate until somebody could hear your cause. Or you'd run to the altars. And that doesn't mean you're going to get saved. It's just like Joab ran to the altar and clung to it. And he held fast. And Solomon was like, kill him anyways. He's guilty. <laughs> right? So holding fast is something we hold fast to our hope. And our hope is that God will save us in the end. And, and we hold to it without wavering. And, and in that sense, Joab was a good example. He held to it until he got killed. And we hold it until we die. And at that point, he who promised is faithful. We have to trust that the Lord is faithful. Why would you trust God's faithful? I mean, he allowed Hitler, right? Why would you trust God's faithful? Because God's been faithful in everything he's promised throughout all of human history. And he didn't promise that evil would go away until the end. He promised that we could have free will, and he actually predicted and said, when you guys screw all this up, when Hitler shows up and he makes your world miserable, your job's to cry out to me and call out to me, and I will be faithful to save. So that's why Hitler didn't live to a long, lifelong old age. He was taken care of. So you have great evils on the earth that the Lord's allowing, but we're supposed to hold to our hope without wavering despite what we see around us because humans are nasty, icky people. Isaiah 56, 6. I'll bless the foreigners who commit themselves to the Lord, who serve him and love his name, who worship him and do not desecrate the Sabbath day of rest. See how important the Sabbath is? What a silly thing that we sit and study a book every week. And who hold fast to my covenant. This is in Isaiah, folks. This isn't in the New Testament. In Isaiah, it says anyone who does this will be saved, that God promises it. That's what we're holding fast to. He who promised is faithful. That's the promise. Hold fast to it. A living way, a holy way that's set apart, and frankly, it's better. Deuteronomy 13.4, also the Old Testament. You shall walk after the Lord your God and fear him and keep his commandments and obey his voice. You shall serve him and hold fast to him. This is the holding fast that the, the readers of Hebrew would have read. Jesus claimed this personally because he claimed he was God. John 10.27, my sheep hear my voice, I know them, and they follow me. Those sheep, they hold fast to their shepherd. So we do that. Not holding fast is to not hear Jesus' words. To not hold fast is to not know the promises he made. So where drawing near has a lot to do with prayer and worship, holding fast has a lot to do with knowing the promises that are in the Word of God. It's why we study the Word of God. 
You have to know what the promises are to hold to them. If you don't even know them, then you're just trusting me with what I say. Stop doing that. Read the word of God for yourself. Our confession of hope is that there's a new house, new covenant. Chapters 1 through 9 of Hebrews. Without wavering is that we put our total faith and trust in the fact that Jesus meant what he said. He did what he did because he's going to come back and he's going to save us. And at the day that we die, he's there saying, I got this one, they're mine. They've, they've done what I asked them to do. The problem is so many people hold to the empty shadows still. They hold to stuff, hobbies, toys when you're a kid. They hold to the hope of the stock market that it's going to always be there for them. We've seen lately that it's not. They hold to other people, right? They cling to other things. They hold to their confession. They, they, they hold to explanations. But we should be holding to what Jesus said he was going to do and, that he, and what he did. And we hold fast to that. We don't hold fast to shadows anymore. We hold fast to his word, and we do it without wavering. That's why the word of God is so important. It's why it's so tragic that you have entire faith communities that don't even bother with the Old Testament. They're just not going to be holding. What are they holding fast to? They haven't even heard it. So he who promised is faithful and, and really putting the character of all this back on Jesus Christ. We're not trusting in just anybody. We're trusting in Jesus Christ. It's a whole different equation. So to not hold fast, to not draw near and not hold fast is what I would call foolishness. It's just foolish. The first priority of believers, repent, get baptized, worship, and study God's word. In fact, Paul accepts Christ as a savior, road to Damascus. He actually sees Jesus on the road to Damascus. He goes back to his hometown, and there's this empty three years. Three years he's studying the word of God, and he's drawing close to the Lord before he does anything. He's perhaps the greatest missionary of the, of the Bible, except for Jonah, right? He saved a whole town. You look at Paul, the greatest missionary in the Bible, it took three years to just draw near and hold fast. And he came out ready to go, just on fire. Verse 24, let us consider one another in order to stir up good works, love and good works. Oh, are we going to get to the third one? How are we doing on time? We okay to do one more? All right, we'll do the last ones. We got the rest of the chapter next week, so we'll do all these. Draw near, hold close, and then verse 24, let us consider one another in order to stir up love and good works. We'll get to exhortation then. Are we going to do that this week too? Yeah, we'll get to verse 25 next week. We'll just finish on 24 this week. Other texts build on these ideas a lot more fully, but this is a pretty solid summary. The essential thing here is that for a vibrant life in Christ... You start by drawing near to God and you hear God and the next part is to do God. You have to then start doing it. And I honestly think this is where Paul left his hometown and he started doing it. And he went out and did it. The let us here is, I, I, let's point out this is collective. Let us do this. It doesn't, it doesn't say you should do this. It's not an individual thing. And I think that's really important. It's a collective idea that believers get together with with folks and we do things and it's also important that we don't go and guilt trip unbelievers like we don't stir up unbelievers to good works and somebody who's showed up for the first time in our fellowship hanging out with us we don't go and stir them up to love and good works we say draw near to the lord and just chill and be blessed 
right? We just, and you guys, have, almost all of you have heard me say that. Just come and be blessed. You don't have to do anything. Just take the gift because something happens in your heart over that time. It's an important stage. I think these are progressive. Let us consider one another comes before love and good works. Think about that. For me to consider you doesn't mean that I have to love you because it says in order to stir up love and good works. The obedient part of me is to just consider you even if I hate your guts. And in the body of Christ, we're a, we've got a bunch of weirdos. Like, we got to get to know each other. And there's something healthy about doing that. So sometimes I'll say to people, like, what can I do to help out? Make a friend. Connect with somebody in this room. Get to where if you're gone, that somebody misses that you're here because you're a blessing in their life. The word consider is katneo. It's a great, great word. It means to behold, perceive, to discover, to understand something. And I like this translation, to fix your attention on something. Let us fix our attention on one another. Let us understand one another. Let's, and I like the discover too. Let's discover one another, perceive one another. Think of how hard that is and how little that happens out in the world. I would work, I worked for people for 10 years. I had no idea what they were and what they were about, what they did. I just knew them at work. We were work friends. We wouldn't, we'd even go out for drinks on a Friday. This is before I stopped drinking. Like we'd hang out and do it. And so we even did social stuff together, but I don't know them. I stopped working there. The relationship just ends. That's not considering one another. This is something that's really not natural. Worship and prayer are awkward when you first start doing it. Studying the word is hard to get the discipline. Like everybody struggles with discipline to get that done. But to consider one another, that's really difficult to do because it goes against everything in our flesh, which is generally self-focused. We're asked to think of other people before ourselves, right? All over the New Testament. Let us understand one another. Let us fixate on one another. We pay attention to others, but we stop thinking we're center of the world when we do that. We come into a room and say, I'm not the center of the world. I want to see how I can love other people. Think of the difference with children as they grow up into adults. Little kids think about themselves and we think it's cute. When a 30-year-old does the same thing, that's not cute anymore. That's narcissistic. It's horrible. And we live in a nation full of narcissists that all they do is think about themselves, where they're going, their retirement funds, what they're going to do tomorrow, what they're going to do next week, next month how many sales they're going to make. All they do is think about themselves. But one day a week, consider one another. Just practice it a little bit. Fix your attention on others instead of on yourself. What a great thing for young people growing up into adults. Fix your attention on other people, not yourself. That's how you grow into a mature adult. How much of our Christian walk do we spend thinking of other people? This is a convicting question. I'm really asking this. How much... Of how many of your minutes on a Sunday do you spend thinking of other people than yourself? We have one sister in the faith is not in our fellowship, and every time we talk to her, she just gets frustrated with church because she walks into a church and nobody pays attention to her. And you think, you got everything backwards. That is just not how you think about church. Draw near. Hold fast. Worship. Pray. Study the word. Consider one another. Instead of what are they doing for me? Like JFK, maybe you should think of what you should do for them. It's a magic equation that I think JFK got in his little Catholic church. Probably went to a big one, though. Let us, as a collective, be doing this. Just bless one another. 
Somebody walks into a fellowship. We, Steph and I have seen this too, and it's just tragic. People come in and they're messed up. They got all sorts of weird thoughts and thinkings. They think this is okay and that's not okay. And the, the instinct of Christians sometimes is to tell them what to think and how to think it instead of considering who they are, where they came from, what they're... And I'm not saying to give permission to sin. I'm really not saying that. Like, you can do this different. Somebody can walk in and you can just give them a hug instead of judging them. Right? Isn't that a possible alternative? That if people come and we're just happy to see them because we're considering one another? Or we're not doing things with pride trying to see who's got the best theological argument, but we just discover what the other people think because we want to hear them. We're interested. Do we actually like other people? I wrestled with this. Where I was like, honey, I don't think I like anybody at church. But maturity-wise, I was an immature baby Christian when I was thinking that. I just wasn't thinking it. Maybe it's not that I like everybody. Maybe it's something where I can be a blessing in their life. How can I do that? So ministering one to another becomes this consider. That consider idea, katneo, such a powerful word. The one another there is aleleos, a common or a two-way relationship. It can't be done singularly. You can't walk into a church and say, how do I consider one another? Which is what we've been talking about. It has to be done in a mutual relationship. It has to then be a responsibility of two people considering to do it with one another. It narrows the audience of gather to gatherings of believers. The writers of Hebrews are talking about church and church events. You do things together and you love one another. Why is this so important? Because followers of Jesus have to think of other people before we can be a blessing to people. It's so core. Philippians 2 verse 3, Let nothing be done through strife or vainglory, but in lowliness of mind set each esteem better than themselves. Consider one another. Look not every man to his own things, but every man also to other things. Let, the, let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus. Christ Jesus didn't elevate himself. He didn't do that. The closest he got is when he went up to his disciples and said, come follow me. And the disciples mutually said, okay, and they followed him. That's the closest we get with Jesus. Other people, we've elevated him. We glorify his name. But he died on a cross. He didn't glorify his own name. Never did one miracle for himself. Every miracle Jesus ever did was for other people. If you want to be a champion in the kingdom of God, draw near, hold fast, consider one another. That's what you've been told to do. So this is interesting because don't miss those three words, in order to. Those things are what lead to love and great works. Because we don't make love, we're sinners. But when we train ourselves to consider one another and that's mutually accepted and it comes back, now we know what love is. Outside of that, it doesn't work. It's, it's a causal relationship. And I think that's in the Greek, that's really important. In order to is causal. You can't do pure love. You can't do pure good works. You can't bring other people into the kingdom. But what you can do is consider other people. That's the thing that's in your power to do. Frankly, nobody cares what you do if you don't have a loving relationship with them. I have Miss Jan. Am I thinking of Miss January or something in the calendar or something? Miss Jan, your Sunday school teacher. Steph, when she was a kid, had a Sunday school teacher named Miss Jan. Right now, upstairs, there's some kids with Miss Mandy, right? And you grow up, and you got just this, she's just a little old lady. She was the Sunday school teacher for 50 years, something like that. And she's just Miss Jan. 
And every adult in that church remembers going to Sunday school with Miss Jan. And when, they, when a kid walks in the door, you just give them a hug. As messed up little sinful flesh things that they are, Miss Jan would just love on them and welcome. And these kids are totally selfish, totally self-focused. But she just gave them love and love and love. And the kids loved her back. Now we know what love is. She pours it out. They pour it back. And even today, Steph's got this warm, fuzzy feeling about Miss Jan. I was like, I'm the same way with, I don't, I was a boy, I don't even remember the name of mine, but I know who she is. I can picture her in my head. She adored me when I came running into Sunday school. She remembered my name because I'd go out to North Dakota with my grandparents, this little church out in Cafe, North Dakota. And she was the Sunday school teacher up in the attic. Like it was this nasty hot place with a flannel board. But we came in and she was like, Sean, you're back for the summer. And she just gave hugs, and it was just love. When we come into the kingdom of God, maybe we should come in like children. And maybe when people come to visit us, we should be like children and just give love and receive love without judgment, without obligation. God will take care of all that. He does take care of all that. I say that in faith because I've seen it. Anxiety goes away, vanity evaporates, humility naturally comes forth, generosity starts to make sense. If you only think about yourself, don't be surprised when you're not missed in the body of Christ. Nobody misses you. And it's super sad. That's kind of, again, that sister that we have, she, she doesn't go because nobody likes her and then nobody misses her because she's not there. Why would that surprise you? That seems to make sense to me. We think we can generate love and good works, but we don't do that. Only consideration generates love and good works, according to this passage, in order to. Don't miss that. Consider one another in order to stir up love and good works. If you want more love, consider people more. If you want more great works, if you want to be a champion of the faith and do great things, consider each other more. Start in the church, loving and considering in those kinds of ways. When we learn about each other, we learn how to do this. The word stir up there is kind of a shocking word. In the Greek, the word stir up means to incite like a riot. You ever been to a place where somebody gets up on the soapbox and they're just stirring people up? And the crowd, start, you can feel the emotions start to get up. Yeah! And everybody's just nuts about it. And it's elevated. Concerts, concerts the musicians are trying to stir you up. So the word stir up, and then look what you're stirring up. Love and good works. Like you're, you're, you're inciting. It's actually the same word they use for throwing a match on gasoline. You're flaring up something. Let's flare up love to where love's just everywhere because we're so excited to do it. So we're stirring up a strong feeling. We're shouting and yelling and getting indignant if we're out in the world. But in the church, like we're stirring up a unity of spirit where we consider one another. It's just like... I don't know, I think of Sihon the Grinch with the little Israelites singing their songs and eating their foods, and he just hated it from up on his hilltop, you know? It just bothered him how these Christians just love one another. They get excited and riot and wreck towns. We get excited and we do good things for each other because we're so excited to do it. And it seems so silly and childlike, but it's so much better than what the world has to offer. Like, just simplicity. The word love there is agape. I think most of you know that. Man, when, you, when, you're, when you're stirred up to love, like you'll go meet people who aren't in that kind of a community and they, they're like, aren't you upset about the news? Didn't you hear what the news said? Didn't you hear this? And they're trying to stir you up. You watch TV and they're like, you can't miss this show. And they're stirring you up to stupid shadows. 
And then the response to that from a believer is, no, I, I don't get stirred up about that at all. I'm really riled up about this gift I got for somebody at my church this week. Like, that's what I'm into. And we're like, that's what we're riled up about. Oh, it's going to be so cool when, you know, we're going to have a, a nicer place because we got better lawn chairs for people to sit on, right? We need to talk about that in two weeks. We'll talk about lawn chairs. I'm so stirred up for making just better food for people. I'm so stirred up because I get to do childcare this week. Like, we get stirred up. You wouldn't believe how excited Mandy was to watch the kids this week. She's like, awesome, finally. She was stirred up to do love. And what a great thing. She's up there doing a good work. That's absolutely how the church operates. 1 Corinthians 13, 13. Now abide, rest, exist in faith, hope, and love. These three, but the greatest of these is love. And we can't make it ourselves. We have to consider others to make it happen. Faith and hope, you can do them on your own. They're individual. You can just individually have faith and hope, but you can't love alone. You have to love with other people. Faith and hope, you only need before heaven. After heaven, you don't need faith and you don't need hope. You have assurance of faith. But what love continues forever, it's the only thing that abides. And it's the only thing we can't do on our own. Isn't that frustrating? We have to do it with other people. Good works is a key here too. I don't want to move past good works. Here, it, it, we should also note that this is part of a let us. It's within the church context. It's within the body of believers to do good works. A lot of times Christians think good works are outside the body of believers. Yes, you can do good works outside the body. But the good works being talked about here are ones inside the church. No individual does this. We have to do it together just like love. I can't do a good work if you don't understand that I just considered you and knew that that would hit you in the heart. Right? And then I took care of you. Good works. Stop being concerned about doing good works for a moment. Just assess and consider other people and the good works will be revealed to you. Like, honestly, it was really cool because Mandy was, we were talking and she's like, I just can't wait until I can be working with kids. She's really enjoying working with kids at Portals right now. She'll listen to the recording. Mandy, we love how you're doing this. She's so excited about what she's doing. It's such a blessing. She's talking about all this sort of thing. And then we were like, oh, we might have kids at fellowship this week. And she's like, Oh, she didn't need to create that. God was already working on her heart before the opportunity even popped up. And people just rushed to it. And in a unity of spirit, that kind of happens. I know a fellowship where they had a guy that had a job through the university where he had to go to Peru to help him grow new potatoes, uh, Dave. And Dave comes back and he goes, yeah, he's done with these people doing potatoes. And they were just a group of new believers. And they're like, oh, we wish we could get somebody to teach us the word down here. And we got translators. We got all that. So he goes back up to Madison, Wisconsin and goes, Pastor Jeff, these people really want somebody to teach them the word. Pastor Jeff was like, awesome. Brought it up with the body. And the body is like, we'll go down there. And what else can we do for them? Consider one another's. And then it all became super obvious. They went down, did some building projects with them, helped them with their potatoes and their carrots. And they taught the word every night and just did church with them for a couple weeks. Totally blessed the body. And then they started going back every year. You don't have to go out and make works happen. God will give you the works. They'll appeal right in front of you. And when they do, the hearts of the people will be ready to go. We consider each other in order to stir up love and good works. We get, we're excited about them before they even happen. It's just amazing. Here's a story from Luke's. I, I think Jesus gave us these examples in his narrative too, about just this difference about thinking about it your way or thinking about just being excited about what God has for you. It happened as they went that they entered a certain village and a certain woman named Martha welcomed him into her house. You know this story, right? 
And she had a sister called Mary who also sat at Jesus' feet and heard his words, drew near, held fast. But Martha was distracted with much serving. And she approached him and said, Lord, don't you care that my sister's left me to do the serving alone? I'm doing all the good works here. Therefore, tell her to help me. You, I like how she goes to the pastor to tell somebody else to be excited about good works. And Jesus answered her and said, Martha, 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 Martha. Are you, maybe that's where the Brady Bunch got that from. You're worried and troubled about many things, but one thing's needed. And Mary's chosen that good part, which will not be taken away from her. Just let her come and be blessed. Stop trying to tell her to do things. Why is it if you want to serve, go serve? Why do you need her to be serving with you? Because then you're not doing it with the right heart. Martha, Mary, Martha's doing it out of obligation because she thinks she needs to do good works. But she doesn't have to. She doesn't win anything through her good works. That The price has been paid. It's been taken care of a long time ago. Your housework, your ministry, your works, your outreach, it's your, 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 your. It's not God, 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 God. Let go of the your stuff and don't fixate on good works. Fixate on other people and consider one another to stir up the love and good works. You see the logic flow of that? so hard because everything in our flesh wants it to do it. Me, 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 me. I got this. I got that. We can do this. We can do that. And God says to do the exact opposite of what we get stirred up about. Consider one another. Draw near. Hold fast. Consider one another. So we see people doing chores. So yet, how do chores get done? How does the Martha stuff happen? Here's how it happens. And we've seen this for five years now in the body. This is how it works. We come and we just get blessed for a while. And after a while, you're like, man, somebody cleans up my dishes every week at church. Have you noticed that? Dishes just get cleaned up around here. How does that happen? Because Grant decided one week, I'm not a very social person. But what I can do to love on the body is I can let the social people just keep being social, and I can take their dishes and bring them to the sink. Because it's not, I don't do that very well, but one way I can love on them is to quietly get the dishes, bring them to the sink. Nobody told Grant to do that. Nobody had to go to the pastor to tell Grant to start doing that thing. He just started doing it, and he loved one another. Well, he did that for months before all of a sudden another person in the fellowship, Zach, started getting up and doing it with them. And then they started competing with each other as to who could get more dishes. And it became this great joy that they brought to the body because they're just doing it out of pure joy. And one week, Grant's not feeling so zippy, so he doesn't do it. And like the whole body feels this void. And I can't remember who stepped up and did it, but the dishes just went in there. And we still have that. Amy does a lot of that right now. She just gets up and starts getting the dishes. Because if I'm not in a conversation where I'm ministering, considering one another, maybe I can help keep that going by doing other things. So things just get cleaned up. Things just get done because people are stirred up by the love they've received. And then when that opening appears, they're like, I'm, I'm just so into that. I'm ready to go. So they, they jump in and they do it. So as needs popped up, we've just keep seeing that again and again. Food, the baptism picnic, Bonnie, just that just got planned, and she just did it out of joy. Uh, chores get done. Um, podcasts get put up. Like Things happen every week because people are just so joyful about doing it because they've been blessed. They want to bless the body, and outreach just starts to happen. So that's the impact. So next week we'll come back to not forsaking the assembling of ourselves together as is the manner of some, but exhorting one another and so much the more as you see the day approaching. You can see where there's just too much here, right? So we'll finish the chapter. We'll come back to that assembling of ourselves, why we do it, what we do.
and and just the rest of Hebrews, like the next three chapters are just kind of expanded magnifying glasses of hold fast, draw near, hold fast, consider one another. Chapter 11, 12, and 13. And we'll finish up. Hebrews just ends with a bang and all sorts of memorizable verses, right? <laughs> this is where all, anybody who cites Hebrews, it's largely coming from Hebrews 6 or it's coming from Hebrews 11, 12, and 13 because um, those are kind of the conclusive statements. Let's pray. Dear Lord, we just thank you. I thank you for the brothers and sisters here that just want to hear God's word and study it with me. And, and Lord, what a blessing. And I, and I hope they're blessed by that. And I hope that, uh, Lord, it stirs up in them love and good works and, and that sort of thing. Lord, we want to be faithful to you. We want to draw near to you in worship and in prayer um, because we can. Lord, we come boldly with, with, with a fear of God, but not a fear that we'll be punished or persecuted, but, but we hold fast to the promises that have been made. Lord, thank you that we can bow our heads anywhere, anytime in humility and just come before you and you've promised that you hear our voice. What an amazing thing. Lord, we thank you that we can draw near, that we have that opportunity and that chance. We thank you for that blessing. I pray for the food we're about to eat and Lord, I pray for communion. So if uh, our guys could get up and start handing that out. Um, Lord, we just pray that as we come to a time with communion, Lord, that we take that seriously. We take it because we've felt and experienced the love of the body, um, the body that's been broken for us, Lord. And, and we take the juice um, because we know your blood has uh, covered our sins. And we, we take that upon ourselves, Lord, as a symbol and as a remembrance. You also tell us, Lord, to remember you and to do things in remembrance of you. Uh, we know that communion isn't the actual body and it's not the actual blood. Um, but we do know, Lord, that you, you've given these things to us. So we're going to take some time and take communion today. Lord, just bless that time. May it be a holy and a consecrated time. In Jesus' name, amen. If you found this teaching helpful, insightful, you can support this podcast by sharing it with a friend. Screenshot it, tag it, post it on your social media.